This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. Welcome back to Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. I'm Duke Hip. I'm your host. And we're joined today by another great guest. We're very fortunate to have with us today, Ms. Sunny Tababa. And uh, Sunny is a director for biotechnology affairs at CropLife Asia, which is the voice for plant science here and uh, throughout Asia Pacific. Hi, Sunny. Hello, Duke. Good morning. Yeah, good to be with you. Thanks for doing this. So if it's okay, we'll jump into the five questions and, uh, and get things started. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, this is, of course, the month of June uh, that we're in. It's always, there are many uh, United Nations days on the calendar in June. It's like it's very popular for that. And we've had a couple recently I wanted to to, uh, to kind of raise as sort of a starting point for our conversation. I'm thinking about World Environment Day and World Food Safety Day. And, of course, the, the importance of both of those. Um, and, and thinking about sort of the intersection with those days and, and plant biotechnology, because, of course, there's a role for the for plant biotech and with both of those, both with conserving and preserving the environment, as well as with um, with safety, food safety, and the role plant biotech can play in driving food safety. But as you also know, perception doesn't always match the uh, the reality. So with that, uh, I wanted to um, to kind of tee that up for you, and maybe you can share a little bit with us today about um, the role that plant biotech can play with both of these areas. Thank you, Duke. You know, the United Nations having these big issues around environment, food safety, and health, this kind of give a global attention to these very important issues. And they are all interrelated because the sustainability of environment, they impact on the food safety and food safety impact also on our health, not just environment, but also uh, human health. And, you know, having this global attention really keys on the important role of everyone, not just the global leaders, not just governments, but everyone, including us, individual actions that collectively could impact sustainability of our planet. We only have one. And also on the safety of our food, not just from the point of producing the food, but even to the food that reach our plate. And if we have access and better handle on the food that comes to our table, then we have better health for everyone. That's a very big goal, but it is something that we can work together. Plant biotechnology is one of those tools that can help contribute towards environmental sustainability, uh, food safety, and even uh, better health. Plant biotech, let's just talk on one specific application. For example, the plant biotech crops, which we popularly know as GMO, they have been planted since 1996. And we have seen over those years the importance of this crop innovation because they have helped in producing more on less area, which means that you don't encroach anymore on areas that are protected for biodiversity. So you can grow more for less. Also, these crops that have resistance to pests and diseases, they not only increase the yield, 
but they also provide safety because when the crops are infested by pests or diseases, that becomes entry point for harmful microorganisms. If you don't have a biotech corn, for example, that protects from corn borer, then if the corn plant is attacked by corn borer, that becomes an entry point for harmful fungus that will now uh, give rise to aflatoxin, which is harmful to our health. And so imagine if you have aflatoxin infested corn, and then it will be fed to the chickens with the chickens, then our our chickens that we eat will not be healthy. So this is a very important contribution of plant biotech crops. Now we also have plant biotech crops with improved nutrition profile. So for example, you have heard of golden rice. So that really helps a lot of our children suffering from vitamin A deficiency and even adults that have also this deficiency. And when we talk about environment, we cannot help but think about climate change. And so we have your drought tolerant uh, wheat, for example. So if you have those kind of crops that are able to uh, tolerate or be resistant about stress, whether it is water, it is temperature, then they are more able to contribute to better environment. So like, for example, if you have a crop that can minimize or reduce the number of tillage, the soil disturbance, then your soil structure, soil health is promoted. So plant innovations can really help because agriculture is a driver in environment sustainability, in food safety, and even uh, towards better health. That's right. Well, no, you make some very good points. I so it's not even necessarily just about uh, the sustainability and food safety role it plays, but the changing landscape and so mitigation and adaption to the world that's changing, as you pointed out, through climate change and other other factors. So very interesting. So you raised you raised something I wanted to get a little further into. You mentioned golden rice in there too. So on this podcast, we've had uh, folks from uh, from Erie and ISA and maybe others as well have come on to talk about progress recently last year um, and even less with golden rice. For those who may be not familiar, it's the biofortified crop that was developed to address uh, vitamin A deficiency. Uh, and here in the region, um, I believe it's set to be grown this year in the Philippines, specifically in seven provinces. I, I think I saw that. Um, it's been quite a journey for golden rice. Uh, and this, of course, is not, not complete yet. The story is still being told. But can you share a little bit about what this all means for Asia, why this development is important and just sort of giving us a little bit of a lesson as to, uh, you know, why it's, why again, it's so important for, for, for our region? Yes, because, you know, rice is a staple crop for Asia. Okay, everybody eats rice and somehow meal is not complete without eating rice. So, but rice is also a delivery where you can improve health by biofortification. And this golden rice will provide a delivery for vitamin A, and it can help in the uh, vitamin A deficiency, especially among children. So we heard that over 500 million people in Asia are undernourished, but from children and adults. And so that's a huge number. It's a societal problem. If our children and adults are unhealthy, we have a problem. And so with the approval in the Philippines of golden rice, there is now a seed deployment for seven provinces, which means 
the seeds of golden rice will be grown in those seven provinces and then will be distributed in targeted communities where there is significant vitamin A deficiency. So those provinces have that kind of profile. And this is very good because now you see a very targeted approach to improve nutrition. Uh, Remember, this is a public sector product. And so the journey is really very long. If it's long for private sector, it's much longer for the public sector. And we, uh, everyone should really come to think of it, whatever your stance on GMO, this is something for public good. And uh, we really hope that resistance to GMO will not hamper the commercialization, the adoption, the consumption of golden rice. Uh, Even my children love to see golden rice on our table. It will be yellow. So we look forward to that. More than that, its impact around Asia, Bangladesh has a very high incidence on vitamin A deficiency. And so with Philippines leading the way, that, that could provide examples or models for Bangladesh or even India uh, to look at their rice program and see how golden rice can also help address vitamin A deficiency. Uh, Bangladesh is very much ahead because they have already started the work on golden rice. And so I feel more confident that it will be there. There is work on rice also uh, in Vietnam and Indonesia. So this one will really help a lot in terms of uh, targeting the nutrient deficiency of, of not only children, but also adults. I just couldn't imagine uh, there is a statistics of 250,000 to 500,000 children going blind every year. It feels so heavy. Yeah, that's a game changer. And that's what comes through, certainly the passion as well, as I mentioned from Isa and and Erie and now yourself as well. So exciting to follow that journey and see the difference it's going to make. So very exciting. Well, continue this discussion a little bit. The third question talking about maybe a little bit more of the technology Mm-hmm. And uh, getting your thoughts on um, some specific points within biotech, a lot of discussion, a lot of coverage around the promise of plant breeding innovations and you know gene editing technologies like CRISPR specifically. You know a lot of media coverage, and I think a lot of people don't really know what uh, that is all about. Uh, and uh, gene editing technologies, how they may be helpful here in Asia, and is this the same as GMO? Is it different? And, and just sort of explaining a little bit about why we should care. We should care because we care about food and the food we eat. So these are all, I would say, plant breeding tools. So the the first wave of technology we call transgenic technology, and the products of it are popularly called genetically modified organisms, so GMOs. So transgenic meaning transfer, right, to our own genome. So again, if you look backward many years ago, it is our ancestor farmers that have really contributed towards the improvement of crops. And so over the years, our scientists uh, employing the knowledge of science and technology have improved the plant breeding tools in our toolbox. And so transgenic technology or GMOs is just one of it. And because of the advances of science and technology, we now have a new wave of technology we call genome editing. And so 
the idea of the genome editing, it, it's more targeted in a way that you can even, the way they are produced in the genes is that they are the same as in nature. So the, the idea is they are not GMOs, but there are also techniques on uh, gene editing that could result to GMOs. So the idea here is for the regulatory environment to be able to have a decision tool which part of genome editing it will produce GMOs, thereby subjected to the regulatory environment or safety assessment for GMOs. Why do I say that? Because at the very early stage of these transgenic technologies, people don't know about this. So there's a lot of concern to the point where an international agreement called Cartagena Protocol on Biosafety under the Convention on Biological Diversity was, was put in place. And so the GMOs are highly regulated to ensure the safety concerns of the society, whether public and et cetera. And so the idea here is that most of them, products of genome editing, can be produced in conventional way conventional mutations. So therefore, the suggested approach, the really logical approach would be to have a determination whether they are under the GMO regulation. And if they are not, then they should be treated like conventional crops. It, this is very important because it takes around 13 years to bring a GMO product to the market which means access of farmers to new innovations takes a long time and it can be further delayed. Whereas if we have a very efficient determination and regulation in a way that even genome editing can be subjected to conventional crops regulation, then access to these very important innovations like either uh, climate resilient traits for the crops or with improved nutrition, then farmers should be able to access that. And in a way, if we have a diversity of crops that not only resistant to abiotic stress, to pests and diseases, but also with very good improved nutrition profile or with shelf life quality, then I think we are in a better shape. Yeah, well, that's a very good, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I like that, like that term you use, tool in the toolbox. You know, the idea that the more is better when it comes to farmers mm-hmm. being able to do their job. And, and we've looked at them to do so much. So it makes, makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you touched on something there that um, I'd like to get a little further into as well. Our fourth question, we sort of danced around it a little bit here and there, but maybe driving down a little bit further with GMOs. I think that's always been a uh, sort of a buzzword in a lot of uh, discussions around uh, you know food uh, mm-hmm. and, and what it really is, what it means, what it is, and what it isn't, frankly. I think maybe no... No tool in the toolbox has been more discussed and more, maybe even more misunderstood than, than GMOs. And, and while adoption continues to rise in certain regions, there's certainly more room for growth when it comes to adoption and commercialization of, of GMOs. Um, I, maybe you can share a little bit about what, uh, what you think is the, is the reason that maybe that growth has been limited so far and, uh, and that progress is maybe uh, not as, as robust as it could be. And what, what can be done from food value chain stakeholders and really, uh, you know, others who are interested in that discussion to help move that along and, and maybe see more progress when it comes to GMO adoption. It's a good question, Joe, because 
If you look at the ISA report, the latest they have was the adoption report on uh, biotech crops as of 2019. There was around 191 million hectares devoted or planted to biotech crops in 29 countries. And that includes many countries in Asia, in our region. And based on that, this alone, this kind of technology, if you look at the rate of adoption, this is this is among the highest for technology growing uh, in double digit over the number of years. So this is like uh, if in 2019, it was the 24th year. So it's like our 27th year of commercialization. They haven't come up with a report, but I believe it will be a higher area of production uh, or planting or cultivation of biotech crops because we now have more uh, countries, for example, in Africa uh, that are planting biotech crops, corn and even chickpea, which is important to their to their diet. And so while we say there's a lot of noise opposing the technology, I would also say that farmers who have really experienced using the technology continue to adapt it and expand the area of production. And that's why the area has expanded over the years. Having said that, when I started uh, working on biotechnology, I started with the communications part and way back in the Philippines 1996. So much of the concern really was around understanding what the technology is all about, because they were saying this is like playing God, because you, you insert the gene. And then there is control, because uh, at the time, uh, much of the biotech crops grown are developed by big multinational companies. But over the years, we've seen a variety of crops being developed by the public sector. And so that helped allay the concern and as well as the technology developers, the plant science industry, whether they are the big companies or the other developers, they consistently in the space of conversation where you can talk about the benefits of the technology. I think it is always important. And the long history now, like 28 years already, so that that helps. So government will be thinking over the no, no issue on safety at all. So that sort of give confidence to government. And well, I just wanted to to think about the crisis brought about by conflict that also may kind of shape the policies towards adopting of new innovations like biotech crops because our supply chains are disrupted. And so I think policymakers now have a space for a self-sufficiency aspect in their, their food security goals. These are all really good points. And we hear that so many times in these, these conversations that we're having about, you're, you're right, I think sort of a reevaluation of everything in light of the of COVID and of climate change and now conflict, uh, those huge drivers as far as what we need to do to make sure we, we're, we're meeting food security uh, challenges. Well, we've come to the last question uh, in our discussion, and it's always the same one. We always ask our, our guests uh, about uh, something a little more positive. We talk a lot about the challenges and in this case, maybe more of the technical details, but if you were to look into your crystal ball, you know, look ahead by maybe five or 10 years uh, here in Asia, 
with with respect to food supply and and what's happening maybe through innovations maybe other aspects of, of what's happening uh, through the landscape is there something positive you'd say you predict as a projection that you'll think will come to pass uh, something good something uh, you might share with us it's a positive development I'm an optimistic person at at heart and with very good reason, especially now. You know, you think of 10 years, it's not really that long uh, due because if you look at just, for example, you have the golden rice, three years of it is really on the piloting stage. So before it can really take off. But one of the reasons is that golden rice will take off, the eggplant will take off, drought-tolerant wheat will take off, then you will have a variety of GM crops on the ground, coming from the private sector, coming from uh, the public sector. And then recent developments also are very encouraging. So just early this year, you know, China approved the cultivation of GM corn. And China, if you just think of China, this is more than 40 million hectares of corn right now in their uh, in their farms the uh, aggregate area it's a huge thing and indonesia has approved gm corn and they have around 4 million hectares so all of this will really help the society the respective governments in terms of ensuring stable supply of grains so that the allied industries like the feed industries the livestock industries can be ably supported uh, if there will be supply disruptions, then the impact will not be that great because they have a stable domestic supply. And with China cultivating and Indonesia uh, very soon, then maybe India will be the next country because uh, with all of this development, that will, you know, there, there is always a competition, uh, something like that. And that will also lessen the import and uh, have a stable supply of corn for the local industries of India. And there is genome editing products coming our way. So I'm just very excited I'm not even looking 10 years. I'm just looking like within three years, I could see non-browning apples in the supermarkets because these are qualities that can reduce food loss and food waste. So imagine if your apples don't turn brown after leaving them on open air, then you don't throw them away because they don't get brown. So I'm very confident that with the diversity of products coming out of these plant breeding innovations and, and enabling the regulatory environment, I'm pretty sure, due confident that we will be able to overcome the challenges that are before us, whether it arises from climate change or even from conflict or hopefully not any more COVID. <laughs> That sounds great. I don't think you'd have much pushback from others. Uh, a more resilient, more robust food system based on uh, some of these technologies that are coming online. I think we'll, we'll all sign up for that. Well, thank you, Sunny. With that, you're officially off the five good questions hot seat. We appreciate <laughs> you taking time today and look forward to hopefully uh, having this conversation again in the future. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview.